This episode of Unsung NZ is brought to you by The Rock Shop and Rode Microphones. Cheers. Kia and welcome to Unsung NZ where I get to share with the world the songs New Zealand loves. Uh, my name is Cristiano Colano, and this is episode three. I've got a real heavyweight today, um, and that is Alan Jansen. Now, Alan has been here from the start, in mid-70s, late 70s, steroids punk band. Um, the seminal Body Electric, which again was in my Zero episode, a very important song personally, Body Electric's uh, pulsing that is. Um, he shifted around the country, worked with a lot of South Auckland talent, worked with Shona Lang, worked with, oh man, I'm not going to go through that list. But of course, we all know him globally for Sisters Underground and of course the huge song How Bizarre, which it sounds like he's still living comfortably off. I don't know. He sort of quietly mentions it anyway, coming up. But he, he continued on, um, uh, help with Nathan Haynes. And then, of course, recently working with the late Graham Brazier. Who, and you'll hear in the interview, Alan finished Graham's album posthumously. Is that how you say that? After he passed. Um, it's just one of those incredible stories. You know, you're working on with someone on an album... He passes away before you complete the album. And then somehow Alan gets up there and finishes it. Anyway, it's all coming up. Um, yeah, an incredible New Zealand music story. Just, uh, you know, a legend. Uh, let's do it. Let's go. This is Unsung NZ. We're going to get in behind the minds that make the music. Let's do it. Alan Jansen. It's all recording. Good. So yeah, um, again, a legacy guest here on Unsung NZ. So this is long form. Um, so I'm going to start at the start. You were born in? Oh gosh, pretty much in the 60s, you know. <laughs> Whereabouts in NZ, I mean. Were you born in Kiwi? Oh, oh born in, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, okay, here's another thing. Here's another starter, because my name is Cristiano Ercolano, and it's a dog. I've grown up with, well, it's a beautiful name, but it's not helpful. I'm, I realise there's a few strange names coming up, so I thought maybe as part of my conversation I'm going to check everyone's name out, get it said properly. Yeah, Alan Jensen, yeah. You were born and bred here, though? Yeah, in Wellington. What are you hearing as a child musically? Oh, good grief. It was very, very strange for me. It was, um, I grew up, my cousins were the ones that were into music, and it was, we sort of grew up listening to the Beatles, of course, mm -hmm. and the Rolling Stones, and um, Yardbirds, of course, and Spencer Davis. A lot of cool stuff, actually. And then, um, well, it was when I was at school, actually, I remember the music teacher telling this guy to bring this album in that he had, and the album was the first Black Sabbath album. Wow. And it just changed my bloody life. I just what the hell is this? You know, it just literally blew me away. And uh, after that, schoolwork just, I didn't want to know. I just left. And um, you know, I went and got an apprenticeship in building, and I always wanted to play the guitar. I loved what that Tony Iommi was doing. And wow. I thought, it just sounds incredible. It's blowing my mind. And uh, then this um, builder, 
Oh, he wasn't a builder, sorry. He was a labourer. Bob, his name was. A lovely guy. And uh, he actually said to me, have you heard of this band MC5? And I thought, what? That's a cool name. No, I've never heard of them. And he bought the album into work and gave it to me. And I had it for... I couldn't buy it anyway. I just couldn't purchase it, Christian. It was really strange that it was this amazing album that just really, that changed my life again. That's a major piece of work oh you know. it's fantastic hey and uh and on that one it didn't have uh, kick out the jams motherfuckers it had kick out the jams brothers and sisters i'd censored it so i never when i heard um klf years later do that and people said oh that's mc5 oh, i don't remember that <laughs> <laughs> but uh what an album there was something about that tone that guitar tone that uh, Kramer used to get in that, and it was um, Fred Sonic Smith and all that. There's just a tone that they got in the sound that just blew my fucking mind, you know. And uh, then the weirdest thing happened. Uh, this guy we used to know, Mark Burtonwood, his name was, he was a nice guy. He used to work in a um, uh, the old Polydor back in the day, and he printed record covers. Yeah. And we saw this record that was never released in New Zealand. For some reason they stopped it, but it was Raw Power by Iggy Pop. And um, he, we got to stack them because we used to get the record covers that were deleted or they w- had a colour wrong or something like that, you know. I'll never forget, uh, one dude came in and he said, um, he was quite argumentative, and he said, you never know, he said, this guy, this dude, and he points at Edie Pop, he might have been round before Bowie. And I thought, yeah, that's quite possible because no one knew who Iggy Pop was. That's the truth. You know, Raw Power back then as kids, we were all of about, you know, 14, 15. Um, I I took on my apprenticeship. I left college when I was 14, a bit naughty, and uh, took on an apprenticeship just as soon as I turned 15. And uh, I remember going into a place called Records Preservation and I saw this um, vinyl in there and it was the Stooges. And I thought, I've seen that name. And it was the first album that um, Iggy Pop ever did. And it was produced by John Cale. And I think it was the fact that it was produced by John Cale automatically sort of was like a magnet. And I thought, well, well what's this? Well, I didn't know that he did production work as well. I only knew him from Velvet Underground. So I um, threw it on and I heard, um, what's 1969, okay, you know, and, and want to be your dog. And I thought, oh, this is me. And <laughs> that oh, was it. And I, I, in those days, I had to put a dollar down on it and go back and pay him back another dollar because it was $2.50 or something. And I remember taking it home and all the songs that he really loved, he only ever used three words. Well, it's 1969, Okay, you know, and wanna be your doggy. All the verses were always three words, and same with the choruses. He wow. thought the less said, the better. Wow. And I thought, it's pretty incredible. I, I love this. And my flatmates came and said, look like you just wasted your money. This guy's not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I just loved it. And again, it was Ron Ashton. And there was something about that guitar tone. Then I heard Ted Nugent. Well, I wasn't a big fan of Ted Nugent. It was a bit sort of heavy metal-y. And uh, I'm a guitarist, watch me. But again, there was that tone there, that insane guitar tone. And that guitar tone came out of Detroit. And I think it was all those guys growing up with the factories and the cars and everything. And that really inspired me. I thought, wow, this is incredible. When punk rock came along and I said, but this is just Icky Pop and MC5 and all the punks in Wellington laughed at me. <laughs> yeah, and um, you, you, a lot of that, it's just nowhere near as edgy as I thought. You know, you just go, wow, there's that real, There's like it's like some of them are country joke songs. Yeah. You know, like uh, the, because I've already talked about Rena. Um, but it's, 
you know, it's not that that in your face scared. You know, you said, oh, here we go. I'm going to be scared because, but it's not all the skeptics. And funny you should say skeptics because they. Um actually supported us in a place called El Clubo can you believe it in Palmerston when the steroids went up there and they were the nicest guys and I kind of kept in touch with them. We were um, only together two weeks and (laughs) Peter Freider he called me up and he said "Um, look um, you're not going to believe it Citizen Band's truck's just gone off the road and they're supposed to be playing tonight at the um, Winter Show buildings they're supporting a major act with the steroids like the gig I said, well, Peter, we've only been together two weeks. He said, how many songs have you got? And I said, oh, about seven. He said, fine, can you get up there and play them all? And I said, oh, I suppose we could. Who's the act? And he said, cheap trick. Holy shit. <laughs> so this is another story. So I go to this show and I'm thinking, um, oh, this will be really cool. You know, I wasn't a fan of cheap trick, but I loved a couple of their songs. You know, I want you to want me. And yeah. I was looking around for Rick Nelson and I thought, gosh, um, I can't seem to find him, you know, uh, he didn't seem to be there. But there was a guy that looked like him in a three-piece suit that was going through all the accounts with the booking office. I said, him, he had glasses on and he looked like a bloody businessman. I thought, no, that can't be him. So uh, anyway, I went out back and um, Wellington Show Buildings, they had caravans for the band. And in one caravan, I counted 29 Hamner guitars. And there was two roadies in there and all they were doing was tuning Rick's guitars. And I thought, wow. And then in the other caravan, there was something like about 10 bass guitars for the bass player. And I thought, wow, this is, um, I've never seen anything like this, real production production sort of thing going on and we got up on stage and we played and fortunately um, we only had two original songs and the other five were covers but they were good covers you know Gang of Four and Wire and a lot of the kids in the audience didn't know those bands and they thought that they were all original songs so they shouted for an encore which was crazy we didn't have one you know and of course we wouldn't be allowed to go and play one anyway we were just supposed to be there as the support act to warm the crowd up for the main act and I'm in the caravan and who should walk in but Rick Nielsen and he's like got his cap on you know with the thing up and he's flicking pics everywhere and what have you and thumbs up and everything and he started saying is that all your friends calling out out there for the encore and I said no no I said no disrespect Rick but um Oh, none of our friends would come to a cheap trick gig because they were all, they were all punks, you know, most of them. And he, he looked pretty horrified and he's like, oh, wow, you know. And I said, and um, while I'm at it, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? And he said, um, well, how personal? <laughs> I said, um, look, why do your songs sound like everybody else's? And he said, example? And I said, okay, so I said to him about a song that I thought sounded like Eddie Cochran crossed with um, the Beatles. And he said, you've got it. And I said, what do you mean I've got it? And he said, well, he said, you're on to it. I said, what do you mean I'm on to it? You haven't answered my question. He said, what I do is I find two songs I really love. I bridge them and whammo, cheap trick. Wow. And I said, What? And I was sitting there thinking to myself, this guy's a genius. Or an ex-sales rep who's just changed jobs. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. 
And you picked him, though. That's kind of... Yeah, it was interesting. And he was cool after that. We sort of sat there and became like mates. I bet you no one's fronted up to him like that before. No, no. I didn't know where I got the gall, actually. But hey, it was... Yeah, I'm scared now you've told me. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, he was very, very cool. And I realised that was him that I saw looking at the books. He was a businessman. And he put to me, it made me actually realise that it's, um, you know, music. But there's another word there, business. Mm. And there's a show, but there's another word there, business. Mm, And that's what Rick knew, was he knew the business, business, show, music. Yeah, 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 wow. So, yeah, that's a great story. Um, um, So, that skeptics, you know, steroids scene, at the time I remember being just totally all involving of the student world, but it's really such a short span. It was, yeah. It's really quick click. It's a couple of 78 to 80 is what it kind of feels. It was all over. (laughs) Amazing. Like, and then um, I actually. I don't know what it was, but I loved the idea of actually just having a oscillator oscillating, playing it with one finger. I was never a keyboard player, but actually the notes on the guitar were on the keyboard and you could play them with one finger and you could design it. I always used to use, um, people would remember I had um, um, amazing fuzz and I had compressors and I had delays and everything. But with a synthesizer, you could actually just take the one note and you could make it oscillate. You could, If you had a profit one, you could bring in another oscillator and you could detune them and do amazing things. You had attack, release, sustain, which you still got all those things now but synthesizers don't exist anymore. It's all in a um, computer as such, mm-hmm. which I think is sad because those oscillators, every oscillator had a different warmth and a different sound to it, and I say it's quite a job to actually replicate that now. Don't you worry, Eurorack exists, and it's heavily, <laughs> heavily happening. I remember the story I read, the Ultravox rehearsal. Oh, Was yeah. that the Lindrum, or were they using... No, it was 808. Straight up 808. 808, that yes. Fucking rock. That machine's so fucking rock. Oh, the it's way it brilliant, pushes, isn't it? it pushes early or something. It's doing something. Yeah, that is just insane. I remember Gary, who became the singer for Body Electric, Gary Smith, he said, hey Al, you've got to come down and have a look at this, because he was roading on it. Well, what's going on? He said, the drummer's setting up. And uh, the drummer spent about 15 minutes on his drums. He said, do, 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 do. And then the kick, do, do, do. And that was it. And then he spent about an hour and a quarter sound checking his drum machines. He had a CR78 and an 808. And I thought, oh, this is the future, man. I've just seen it. Wow, that is so cool. What year is that? Oh, it's 808, so it has to be 80. Yeah, it was. It was early 80s. And uh, they'd just done Vienna. And the record companies had told them that, oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> the first album was produced by Brian Eno, wow. the first Ultravox album, and it had that brilliant song on there called My Sex, and uh, that's where My Sex got their name, because it's another mm. story. Um, I had Graham Hood come and say to me, oh, you've got a great cassette deck and a great sound system. He said, could I tape some stuff? There's a band called The Fragments of Time, and they want to go punk. <laughs> yeah, really. So uh, I said, but hang on, the fragments of time, that's Steve Gilpin as a front man because we only knew him from the television shows, you know. I said, how is he going to go punk? And anyway, he recorded all this stuff down and that introduced me to Ultravox. And I thought, wow, this is very cool. And uh, this brilliant track on there. Um, if you listen to it, um, you'll see where My Sex got computer games. Not only did they take the name of Ultravox from the song My Sex on wow. the first album, but there's a track on there goes, the man who died 
dies every day. And it's got this dun 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 and you know the man who dies every day sort of thing. And uh, you can hear compute computer games. If you listen to the riff, you can actually wow. hear where they and this was one of the things that he gave them. And so I thought this has got to be good. So I went along and saw my sex play at the one of the clubs in Wellington. And they all came out with short hair. I couldn't believe it. And they all had that sort of punk look and did this punk thing. We were all, wow, this is amazing. This is incredible. And they finished up with doing an encore with Joe Walsh, Rocky Mountain Way. So somehow I don't think they quite got it to begin with. I had no idea my sex was so, you know, when I, I just reminded me that Steve Gilpin was a thing before it, um, which I've totally forgotten. Um, and wow, that feels so sort of, not forced, but um, d- deliberate. Like, they, oh, oh they've got a plan. Wow. Yeah, they it's did. They had a plan. Flash. And then it, they did really well around New Zealand, but they decided there just wasn't enough here for them. Because I got to talk to the bass player quite a bit, Don. He was quite a nice guy. And he said, you've got to come along and see the band. I'll put your name on the door. And I thought, oh. And when he told me Steve Gilpin was singing, I thought, you've got to be kidding. I remember him from a show called The Entertainers, you know. Right. <laughs> and uh, Don said, no, no, it's not the Steve Gilpin that you used to know from the... This is a whole new thing. It's our band and Steve's our front man. So, and he was amazing. He really, really carried it off. He's the real deal. Yeah, yeah he, he did. Was, now yeah. I realise... As an entertainer, he knew what he was doing. It yes, wasn't a, yeah. yeah, it was fantastic. Oh my gosh, that's cool. So yeah, that was my Ultravox question. Yeah, so that brings sorry. me to, and no, the the question, the next two words here on my list are CR78808. Yeah, so yeah. we just answered that. Wow. I loved the CR78 as well. Um, noisy as all hell. Yeah. Was it on? Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> but the neat thing was that they had those little clocks that came out of them and uh, we used to use the rim shot on the 808 to trigger our synthesizers and body electric no such thing as midi back then and um i hate midi yeah i was my next question still hate midi i just heard the I answer hate it. What, what what's your is it the lag what is it you're very because you sound a lot musically there's a lot of vince clark in who you are and he <laughs> hates midi he's a cv gate person yes I can't get my head around it. Number one is MIDI allowed all these ass keyboard players to come in and suddenly get in on the electronic thing, and that's what destroyed it completely because they took it away from the monophonic one-note thing and started playing all these fancy sevenths, ninths, and scrotillion sort of chords that you'd never, ever heard of, and it just became boring and yuck. Um, it's, I don't know, it was something was, in some ways, that early Vince Clark, and it was almost punk, you know, when you think mm. about it. It was very much, here's something new, what do you think? Yeah. And um, well, they didn't even care what you thought. They just did it. You know? <laughs> and uh, what it does, is I think MIDI for me stood for M-I-D-I, many idiots desire it. <laughs> and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I loved the fact that you could take a click track out of an 808 drum machine and you could trigger a MS-20 or you could trigger, uh, we were triggering a Pro 1 and an MS-20 and people would just get up and dance before you did anything. you get this ticka 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 tick, and it was never in sync but it was out of sync in a way that got your body moving. And uh, well... I'm a, I grew up with disco. I'm a dance kid. That's that's how it is. If if you can't please the crowd, you're not doing what music magic should do. That's how I grew up. You know. Mm. You know. So, pulsing was so dancey. How, how much were you? 
was it it sounded like you just said you realized it, it did that let's follow it hmm. you weren't going okay we're going to make a slammer it was just they just just felt like that system built slammers well yes this is funny because andy who was in body electric with us to begin with uh, andy craig um, lovely guy great bass player fabulous bass player also in the steroids with me um he kept saying to me have you heard the new michael jackson album have you heard this kid michael jackson and i was like no <laughs> wasn't my thing mm. and he said it's where it's at man that whole disco thing that dance thing it's where it's at it's where it's at and um that's why he naturally sort of led us in that direction and uh, it worked out really well because in those days the only places you could get gigs was the nightclubs because yeah. all the gigs had died because of the punk thing, you know, that sort of, um, they ended up in big fights and fights out in the street and people not getting in and windows getting smashed and bottles broken and what have you. <laughs> and it would always be whenever you did a gig, you'd wait and there'd be some sort of rummage at the back of the room that would eventually make its way to the front of the room. So it was a real shame that it sort of got destroyed from within, if you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. I think um, that whole punk thing became the day for the... Um, ugly guy to have his say and come in and start kicking people's heads in, you know, it was a real shame in some ways. Um, but I, I like the whole attitude of, um, you know, screw your culture, we're going to create our own. I mm. thought that was cool with the safety pins and things. But even now when you sort of see how um, Malcolm McLaren followed that safety pin thing from Richard Hill and the Voidoids, you mm. know, they mm. showed that thing the other night on a punk documentary. Yeah. It was MC5 and Iggy Pop being the godfathers of punk and I was, yes, I, I tried to tell them, but they just wouldn't listen. <laughs> Call back in our own podcast. <laughs> yeah. Just fatted yourself on the back. No, well, well, I. but my geeky question here is, when did these fear lights come into your life? Why you, didn't you see a fear light? And there's one, that's an expensive piece of kit to see around. Man, what is it? I need to know your story about the fear light. That's what I'm asking. Okay, this is insane. But uh, when Body Electric made their album, suddenly I started listening to ABC Lexicon of Love, mm. going, wow, what the fuck is this? This is just blowing my mind, you know. Um, and it was also a bit of Frankie Goes to Hollywood in there and things like that. And I went to the engineer at Marmalade Studios and said, what the hell is this? How, how, how are they getting this? This is just incredible. And he said, oh, it's the production and the arrangements. I was like, yeah. And so what's that tell me? You know, I mean, there's, I can hear complete orchestras playing in there and everything. And he was like... Uh, no, no, it's just the way you arrange it and that. And you, you well, more or less saying that we weren't capable, you know. Mm. And uh, then I got talking to someone, who the hell was it? It was um, Doug Rogers. And he said to me, um, oh, it's the Fairlight. And I said, well, what the hell's the Fairlight? He said, it's this um, computer made in Australia that's made to teach students the physics of sound. I was like, oh, okay. So I looked it up, and because um, you didn't have the internet in those days, mm. so I sort of had to go to a fair bit of trouble. But I did find out all about it, and there was um, this thing that generated harmonics as well as you could sample a sound and then generate the harmonics from that and synthesise them. Which I thought, wow, this is just this is mind-boggling. Mm. <laughs> you know, the possibilities are just endless, and. Uh, I, Doug said to me at the time, he said, I've got these three projects that I'm working on and one of them we need a fair light on, but uh, there's just nobody's got one in New Zealand. And of course I talked to everybody and people would tell me, no, you, 
you can't get one. They're just too expensive. They're hideously expensive. They're just ridiculous. You just so. Um, I said to Doug, what sort of budget have you got for Fairlight on this project? And he said, oh, he explained what the budget was. So I rang Fairlight and they said to me, well, we haven't sold a Fairlight in New Zealand yet and we've got a sale on at the moment. Um, it's 40% off if you wanted to come over and buy one. And I said, well, how much are they? And they quoted me it was something like 26000 And I thought, hell, that's a lot. So I went back to Doug and it turned out that Doug had more to hire a Fairlight. So I said, if I buy one, would he said, oh, just go for it. He said, yeah, we'll hire it off you. So basically, um, Doug helped me pay it off. So wow. What, what project had to have a Fairlight on it? Th- oh, Hello Sailor. Ship shape and Bristol fashion. Wow. I went down to Harlequin, set up the Fairlight, and this guy turned up with little round sunglasses on and that. And uh, he was a lovely guy. His name was Rob Fisher. And he used to come round to Waverley Street where we were living, and he'd sit there with me and give me sounds. We'd swap sounds. And uh, it turned out he was from a band called Climby Fisher. Oh, right, of course. Yeah, and um, what had happened is Doug had employed him to come over with um, Liam Henshaw, who was producing the Hello Sailor album, and everything on there had so much Fairlight on it, it didn't sound like Hello Sailor anymore, which surprised me, but uh, I wasn't involved in any of the musical side of it. Mm. I just hired the equipment to the studio and they did use a Fairlight on an Exponents track as well which um, Doug again uh, paid me for but they were um, yeah it worked out really well that I had that first Fairlight and I all I had to do really was turn up with and then of course um, people like Shona Lang used it Steve McGurdy used it Dave McCartney used it and they were all based at Harlequin at the time so I got a fair bit of work through Harlequin and um, that helped me save up for the um, MFX or what we call now the Series 3 Fairlight Mm. and I had to go in those days there was a um, company called AGC and they'd lend money to anyone and um, they they helped me um, basically they set up the money so we could get the rest of it and it was scary uh, yeah it was great (laughs) I loved working on the um, Series 3 the amazing thing with the Series 3 was it sampled at 100k and you could sample for a minute and a half yeah. So it was really kind of hard disc recording. You could was, chop yeah. your songs up and do it all digitally. Yeah. And then um, my eldest daughter was born, and uh, <laughs> the night we brought her out of hospital and um, you know, brought her home, uh, Shona rang me. It was really late at night, and she wanted me to go on the road with her to America. She was touring America. And I just said, Shona, I, I can't go. My, you know, we've just got a new baby, and it's. And she's, oh, I want you to come and play guitar with me. And I said, Well, I really want to get into doing other things now. I couldn't sort of. I saw my sort of um, time as a guitarist, sort of, you know, the door closing and me moving on to other things. I really felt that happen in Body Electric. I played the guitar more as a rhythm machine than as a guitar. Mm. And which can be done by hi hats. Rhythm guitar can be done by hi hats. Yes. <laughs> Sort of thing. Um, there's an interview saying when you were working with Sisters Underground, you, it was you were just fumbling together, working it out. You and the, the, a few people in the room. It just felt so weird to me that at that stage, you're still feeling nervous and discovering. And like I just did not expect that comment. Yes, um, I was working with a chap, uh, Andy Van, quite a nice guy, DJ guy, mm. and um, he was into swing beat back then. New Jack Swing. Yeah, you got it. And uh, he financed a song by the um, 
uh, what were they, um, semi-MCs, mm. and the track was called Set Your Body Free. And I remember um, he said, come along to a gig tonight. We've got a gig at Manukau, and it was at one of the colleges here. And good grief, there must have been about 600 kids here all dancing in this huge hall. And it was DJ Ned Roy. And at the time, that um, Humpty Dance was huge. Ah. So they'd start with the Humpty Dance, and all the kids would run up on the floor. And I thought, wow, this is cool. And then that... Ice, ice, back, ding, 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 you know, and you think, oh, what the hell? And, you know, as soon as someone says word to your mother, you know there's a problem. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the kids would race up to that. And then the beginning of Set Your Body Free came on and all these kids just raced up and they knew it. And that's when I thought, hell, there's a huge market here. What the heck is this? You yeah. know, this is local product. And these kids are dancing and, you know, getting off on it. Mm. Like, you know, the other two tracks which came out of America. Yeah, wow. And that's what made me think, I need to get into this local stuff. There is a, I was led to believe there's no market here and there's no chance and all that. Well, I wasn't so much worried about record companies and things because they were always... And I feel the same thing's happening now. They'll come and shoot me and all that. But they're just... Record companies were made to actually sell records, not to tell artists what to do. Mm. And that's where it's all gone fucking wrong, you know? Mm. And anyway, getting uh, back to this whole thing with uh, Set Your Body Free, I thought, wow, this is incredible. And Andy said to me, look, I've got more bands, I'll bring them in. But he kind of ran out of money. It got really hard. We did the slam and jam thing. And fortunately, Tim Mann came along and he was working for Auckland City Council. And he said, uh, that song you've done, MC Slam DJ Jam, about Auckland, City, and I said, oh, you proved me wrong. He said, gosh, I'd love to, for the Auckland Safer Communities Council to pick up on that. He said, how much would you guys want for us? Well, what about we don't take any money, but you guys get a video for it? And mm. that's what he did. Bless him, he went out and he got them to shoot quite a good video, which I thought oh. for um, unfortunately, we didn't know anything about makeup or anything, but the video looked good. And when Charlie says Auckland is a city that's oh so pretty, but behind it all are scenes of pity, you know, the um, people never realised that he was talking about Auckland. They all thought he was talking about Oakland. Right, right. <laughs> all the local kids and that. So it became quite a sort of a cult thing wow. going on there, you know, which is really good. Yeah, I really love working with people like that. I just thought so creative because they were just um, doing it with records. You know, they, they that was again the thing that I loved with all that was these guys would just turn up and you know what really annoyed me was we'd sort of had the studio running and bands would take ages to pack in, set up, and then pack out. And these guys would turn up with two turntables and a box of records. It was so easy, and you just right. di them, and away you go. So I I, I lent more towards that right because of you know so when did you sort of start you know finding out that the fair light and stuff were you going to start looping when when you started looping beats oh god bless him as a guy um dave bulog from car crash set he taught me how to do loops right. um he's just sort of worked it all out um he worked it out on a sp what was it 1200 or right. the akai yeah yeah and i got the akai right here <laughs> yeah i see that yeah it was uh, yeah he showed me on that how to do it and uh then there was just no looking back you mm. know he came in one day because Dave and I used to love working together. We just used to have jams and it was good fun. And occasionally, if I could, I'd try and slot the um, jams into little jobs I was doing. You know, I, I noticed in the Sisters Underground interview, you sort of go, oh, we'll bring up the Soul Searchers beat from PM Dawn. I went, oh, you do sound like a DJ at this point. You yeah. know, like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, in those days, it was Ashley's Roach Club, wasn't it? Yes. So um, that's where it was. And uh, at, I think... 
think Simon Gregg had given me a whole stack of vinyl which just had loops on it. Oh. And so we could just, um, with the turntables, we could get it to any tempo we wanted and kind of yep. play around with it. As you did. Yeah. How important is Simon Gregg to all this? I, I sort of thought when I started interviewing anyone, I thought I must tell Simon I'm interviewing people because he's interviewed so many. But as I do more research, he's just at the bottom of every story. Oh, Simon's a lovely guy. If it wasn't for him, I doubt if I'd be where I am now. You know, that's the truth. He was the one that actually, um, he, I don't know what it is. He can just see certain things and certain people that he can bring out. And um, my only problem is in a lot of ways I feel I've let him down. I just haven't been quick enough to do things because I take my time and I've I've really got to love it before I do it. And right. then I love starting something, but then I get halfway through it and think, oh gosh, on to the next thing. Yeah, <laughs> Poor guy just sits there on his hands thinking, come on, Alan, do something. All right. Well, some people are starters. I'm a terrible starter and not a great finisher. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, Simon, he was winning, believe it or not. This is. Uh, in the steroids, he, um, I was so inspired by what he did with the Screaming Mimis with that See Me Go and how it went number one. I thought, man, this guy knows what he's doing. I wish I could get to meet him. There's somebody there that actually understands the whole movement. Wow. And it turned out that um, he, uh, Graham, uh, who was our manager at the time, Graham Glasgow, he sent um, Simon a copy of uh, Mr. Average and Out of Control, which was the first steroid single, and Simon still got it. I can't believe it. Yeah. And uh, it's not the Hesitate, but it's the White Label. Wow. And uh, he um, kept in touch over the years, just sort of um, behind the scenes, and they they used to run clubs that the Body Electric played in and things and anything he could do to help. And then when Body Electric started to drop off the charts after it sort of had, had its day, um, Simon Gregg, Peter Ehrlich and Mark Phillips, they had clubs around town and they picked it up. And bloody hell, that song stayed in the charts for eight months, thanks to them. And, well, Jim Moss, who was a bit crazy, but, you know. I I bought a copy of Pulsing the 12-inch. I've definitely, as a child, remember walking proudly around with, like, this is a New Zealand song. It's all in my oh, intro about how you. much that song changed my life, by the way. You were one of the people who told me it could be done. I, yeah, definitely have that 12-inch. So, And I well, heard that, of course, through Radio With Pictures, I would say. Oh, Peter Blake, yeah. Brent Hansen. Well, yes. They they seemed to get it as well. They really got it. And another guy that was there was Jeff Spears. He was a cool guy. They The three of them just worked in tandem and unison together. And Peter Blake actually said to us, we're going to put you on to this guy, Brent Hansen, who knows how to make videos. And he was great. What a cool guy. Actually, now your front man in that pulsing was an act. He seemed to be quite... A familiar face at that point and then he just G Gary Smith Gary yes, Smith he, that's right he sorry. was with Brooks Theatre um, excuse me just straighten my headphones yeah, <laughs> he, he's a cool guy um, had a lot of a lot of fun over the years with him and I still do we're still in touch all the time um, we started the Module 8 together which was the production company that sort of you know when we got the first Fairlight um, Gary was um, with Brooks Theatre and he did children's theatre and things and um he was great at acting, and that's why I wanted somebody that could tell the story with Body Electric, not a great singer. I just wanted someone that could get out front mm. and tell a story. Mm. And that was the idea that he was the body and we were the electric. Right. You wow. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, um, so uh, this is now, everything gets a little bit depressing at this point. <laughs> um, no, it gets really good now, that's right. Then it gets, here's a hilarious thing. 
if I go to Wikipedia and put your name there and you click on it, it just says OMC. You actually have been, your, your life on the internet has been dominated so heavily by that song. You are not on Wikipedia. OMC is on Wikipedia on your behalf. Tent pole moment in uh, your career because Wikipedia told me. But, uh, oh, yes, well, that's yeah. kind of true. If it wasn't for OMC, I wouldn't be doing this job today still. Mm-hmm. You know, they've kept me in the lifestyle that I've become accustomed to. It's not, um, well, plenty of fame but not a lot of fortune but when the fortune comes it's good it Mm. comes in bits and pieces every year and it just keeps me going doing what I love doing now so Paulie was Paulie died of some degenerative horrible sort of slow thing I'm I'm not sure if it's complicated name how aware of was he or you of that during any of your time with him yeah something very sad when we went to the um funeral of Tom Edmonds who was the landlord of the building that I'm still in um, Paulie fell over on the stairs and I had to pick him up and I was with the missus and I said what the hell's going on and he said oh I had a bike accident bro my legs aren't well and I thought no something's not right here so I knew something was wrong but he didn't want to talk about it so I didn't want to push it you know Paulie's one of those guys if he didn't want you to know you didn't find out right okay so he he may have well known but wasn't telling you anything he wasn't sure I don't think he was sure or it was very sad, yeah. There's a lot more there, and uh, if the movie ever comes out, it'll all be in there, so yeah. I can't say too much. Yeah, right, well, by the rights. Hey, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> they do. Well, yeah, it was kind of crazy, because I fell out with Phil, his big brother. Um, it was a long story. and uh, Fell out? Yeah, I, um, well, I actually had to give Phil a bit of a telling off and then he came and saw me and I thought, oh gosh, he sent his brother to beat me up because <laughs> right. Paulie was quite a mean dude. And uh, Paulie said, no one's ever talked to my big brother like you did, bro. He said, I feel safe with you. Do you mind if I hang out? Oh. And I was like, oh, okay. And I think he liked the idea of the building that we're in. He kept saying, I feel safe here. No one can get in. Because <laughs> we were one story up and we looked down over the street right. and you could see what's going on. I even remember one night he said to me, ow, ow. I said, what? He said, your car's just been nicked. And I raced outside and he was right. <laughs> it was gone. I don't know what he was running from or hiding from, but um, yeah, a couple of times there. I remember when we were in Australia, some... Um, Crims coming to the gig, and they seem to know Paulie pretty well. Oh, that man of mystery. Yeah, he that's was very a, much a man of mystery, yeah. Sounds like there should be a movie, or you think that's happening? Well, it's coming together. I think oh, Simon's cool. working on it from the book and everything. There's something going on there. Awesome. But um, I, um, it's like everything in life, I make my point and then I lose interest and I move on. But mm-hmm. um, I feel really really liked Paulie I had a lot of fun with him and a lot of laughs and uh, it's quite upsetting and it's same thing with um, jumping into the future here but Graham Brazier was one of the other people that gosh I love that guy I had so much humour with him it was Mm. just unbelievable what a cool guy and both Paulie and Brazier in one way um, musically they had the same thing in common that when they walked into that studio and got behind the mic it was just one take and if you didn't get that take you were stuffed and Graham he might work 
you know, you might do that one take four times, but you know out of those four, one of them was really good, and usually it was always the first one. Wow. And it was the same with Paulie. So you just had to have everything switched on and ready as soon as they came in, you know. Yeah, because I was saying this is the, I was going to connect those sad elements together. And was oh, there a similar no. knowledge of anything in that, or was that again out of No, the... God bless Graham. One day I went down to the kitchen, and he was um, toasting his dad. And I um, oh, said, well, what are you doing, Graham? Oh, he got quite a fright because he had his back to me. And uh, he was saying, I'll be joining you soon, Dad. I'll be seeing you. But um, Graham. Oh. Holy shit, dude. Yeah. That is the thing to walk in on. Yeah, I know. It gave me quite a. It actually, my heart sunk because um, I knew I was going to lose a friend. And I felt sorry for the other guys, too, in the band because you think, you know, Harry and Graham, what they must have gone through. And Dave and uh, Ricky, I mean, um, and their bass player as well. I mean, gosh, what a. How they must have, you know, worked so hard together to get where they got and they accomplished so much and left such a wonderful legacy for everyone and just to have Graham in my life for those few years that I did was just like I never had so much fun it was made me realise that that's why I do what I do because I just love to hang out with people yeah. like that you know. Oh no I feel that my music relationships are my closest relationships out of my family. That's you know, true Absolutely yes. tight. Yeah that's you know. true and um, even if you don't get on with the person, it's still tight. There's still something there that, um, you know, it might be personality-wise you don't get on, but the music brings you together at another level. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I can't believe that, you know, that level of sadness. You, you could, I have no idea, bro. I, I don't know you. I don't know how you dealt with dealing with those vocals. For, was that two years later you released? That is some serious fucking balls dude i don't know how emotional balls like yeah, how long was the break <laughs> or how did you do it like um well it was graham's friend kelly um he was putting the money up for graham to record because um, graham i don't know how he did it. he just said i'm going to make an album and i've got a friend you're going to dig him and um he was one of the most loveliest guys i ever met kelly oh, Addis, yes, and yes. Uh, he came from an advertising agency in melbourne and wow. came back to new zealand and um somehow he raised the money to do that album you know he was really good he'd bring entrepreneurial people on board that just wanted their name on the cover and they'd donate so yeah he was incredible incredible guy and um Graham, yeah, there was a few times there there's um like some wonderful things just happened with Graham. He was just incredible. Um my missus got to be very good friends with his mother, right. Christine, and um she was a lovely person as well. The the bookstore. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um I'd go into the bookstore quite often and just hang out with Graham and he'd sing me new songs that he'd written or say, What do you think of this? What does it need? and da 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 da. And uh, there's one song there that he wrote called Seven Sets of Traffic Lights. It's the first track on the album. Yes, yeah. And um, I said to him, what's that about, Graham? And he said, well, when as a kid, he said, I wrote that when I was 17. I said, you're kidding me. He said, I could never finish it. And I thought about it because um, as a producer, you know, I'll be honest here, I'm not that musical I've sort of unlearned everything that I learned back in the day and what I tend to do is when somebody brings me a song I like to record it first put it down and then listen to it and then work out what's not there 
right. rather than tell them what they need or what they should do. But um, with seven sets of traffic lights, I actually said to Graham, gosh, you know why this song's not working? He said, well, I gave it to the band and they couldn't see it. And I said, well, you know why? He said, why? I said, there's no middle eight and I hate middle eights. <laughs> I mean... Um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but I hate middle eights, yes. Uh, The middle eight was something that was invented um, in the 70s due to FM radio, and it kind of killed Motown, really, because Motown was AM, and it was all the songs were two and a half minutes, two minutes. Right. Um, Are you happy? Um, Oh, yeah, I just wished I could have said a bit more about Graham, because I just miss that guy so much. Gosh, he was just a real lovely friend to have. And the funniest thing he said to me was that, um, he said, you know, I could give up heroin, but I could never quit alcohol. And that kind of broke my heart, you know. It was so sad to hear that, eh? Yeah. That, you know, there's alcohol that's so legal and everybody pushing it, and yet, you know, you can give up. He said, like, that's what he told me, I could Mm. give up heroin, but I could never give up alcohol. Gee, that is kind of... Worrying. That is worrying, isn't it? It makes you wonder where society's at. I think we'd better legalise cannabis, even though I don't even bloody smoke the stuff anymore. Probably causes a lot less problems. Yeah, well, I I just got too paranoid. (laughs) Uh, You know, I use it as quality control. (laughs) See, I need it. I'm always... That's great! (laughs) So I need to get a bit more paranoid. Uh, I read that um, Lord gave you a kick up the bum. She did, yeah, because it made me realise that things move a lot faster now. And my daughter loved that song, and she went to the concert and everything, Mm. and um, she took her friend along, and I was like, oh, yeah, but it's it's a shame. It's a beautiful song, but it's never going to do anything. And, boy, before I knew it, it was number one everywhere. Yeah. And that really gave me a kick up the bum, made me think, gosh, I need to get back into working with people that create music again. Oh, good. What what so do you, were you just sort of tired after Graham or what was the what was it the was, downtime? Everything was too slow. I loved Graham because for me it was a creative process and I really enjoyed it and I really loved picking up his legacy and I love working with those artists that can just come in and do it in one take. If I've got to sit there with some guy behind a mic singing a song twenty times, I've got to ask myself, how what am I mm. here for? You yeah, know, has yeah. this guy got it or do I got to tell him what to do? And that's not right. It shouldn't be like that. I'm There's, not here to score them yes yeah know, i don't see that you know yeah. unless there's a record company out there paying me a hundred thousand dollars and that's never going to happen no, no, no so um yeah no it was um yeah that really did sort of give me a kick up the bum because it happened very quickly for her and it was really a, oh, it was a beautiful thing as mm. they say because mm. it made me realize how quick the world is now thanks to the internet and so what are you doing now what's what's busy Oh, I'm very busy, yeah. I'm working with a young guy, Tama, and um, he's got a drum and bass compilation coming up, which I'm really enjoying that, because he's sort of, um, he's going at it a completely different way to anything I've ever heard before. Ooh. And it kind of reminds me of myself a lot when I went and did Proud, and he's picked up 10 artists, and he's doing different songs with them all, and he's co-writing the songs, and I'm sort of just helping him along the way with some choruses and just a few things tidying up, but he's really got it together. Oh, cool. Oh, there's always things coming up. Yeah, yeah, I'm working with um, quite a few young people on that, and it's it's very cool. Um, in the interim, too, I got tied up with doing some movie stuff where I, um, you know, a couple of them got 
passed with Dolby, Dolby Surround, mm-hmm. which oh. I know nothing about Dolby, but I learnt it as I went along, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I just can't afford to spend the 15, 20 grand or whatever it is to hang the Dolby sign on the door. Yeah. Yeah, there's good money in it, but it's not what I want to do. No. I, I'll help out a filmmaker if they get stuck, and I did it for these two uh, movies. One was an Australian film, one was a local film, and I don't mind helping them out. Um, you know, and I did it for half of what it would cost if they'd gone to a yeah, professional Dolby sure. people. But yeah. uh, I also learned a lot from that. Mm. You know, how to sort of control the, what's in the centre and what's basically mm. left, right, and surround. It was very, very interesting. Eh? Very, yeah. very interesting. But um, fortunately, um, Rick Huntington, whom I work with, these engineers with me. Back in the days of how bizarre, people would actually listen to that album and go, "Gosh, it certainly does sound international." I wasn't expecting it and that was to do with what we were just talking about Ricky designed this thing which would put information out of phase with the desk so we'd do the left minus right and all that and um what you do is you actually put some things in there, like it might be strings, might be a bit of acoustic guitar, and it makes the track sound a lot fuller because wow. you've got this whole information stream there that's out of phase. You can't hear it, but when you put something into it through an auxiliary, the track suddenly it just gets bigger. Oh. And when you pop it into mono, it just completely disappears, as you know. You know. But um, yeah, no. what did you pay for those new speakers, oh, the I big ones? I won't go there. Holy. It was um, quite frightening, actually. Um, put it this way: the, even the new vehicle I bought cost me less. <laughs> so, mm. but um, I can't live without them. I have to say, it um, means that eventually, if I wanted to move stuff home and do it from home, I probably could. I just have to set up the acoustics in a room and get them. I know now how to acoustically treat the room and to get the best result out of my speakers. Yeah, you said when you walked in this morning that you felt for the first time in however you're long your career, one of the longest in New Zealand. If you look at that discographer, it's epic when you think about it. Huge. But you said today, I finally feel like I've nailed it and I can hear a mix before I walk into it. Yes, it's quite true, actually. I um, think it out first and then I go in and mix it to how I think it. Whereas before, I used to just fumble around, oh, we'll try this, we'll do this, we'll do that. Now I actually know what I'm doing before I go in. And you've always sort of worked alone. Like you're just one of those people who, like I said, we've always had to learn these instruments by ourselves. And you've ended up following that path down the way you are. You're an engineer. You're mastering house. You're a yeah. That's funny. Y- that, you're a player. It? Yeah, yeah. It's um, gosh, it's been five long apprenticeships. <laughs> it's not like you're a control freak. You don't. You're not a control freak, are you? You're, you no, no. I, I do. Um, just a solo guy. Yeah, yeah. Some people might say I'm a control freak. I'm not. Um, but it's just sometimes I hear things and I just keep going for that what I'm hearing. And sometimes the artist doesn't quite get it and they yeah. think I'm a nutter. But I've never heard anyone call you a control freak. I'm oh, just saying okay, this was not one of the. I'm saying that's not the underlying reason why you're doing everything. It's more that you're just like kind of working it out yourself. It's part of the process of working it out. It's part of the process. I was offered a job where I would have to tell people what to do and I was talking to the missus about it and uh, I said, oh, I just can't do it. I, I can't tell people what to do. And she says, I don't know, you seem to do a pretty good job around here. <laughs> so, <laughs> words of wisdom. Okay. What, what are you most proud of in this long career? What made you go, oh, it's hard really. Um, there's so many of them. There's so many of them. Gosh, that's a real hard one. 
I always, you know, got the goosebumps when we put on Sisters Underground, and I got the goosebumps when we did How Bizarre. Mm. Um, so you knew those two were working? Oh, yeah, I just I love those songs. I could tell Sisters Underground was special. Yeah, um, yes. But How Bizarre is strange. I wouldn't know it would work as well as it did. Oh, I knew that was going to work. Wow. I just had that feeling because there was so many different elements to it. It was real culture jamming, you know. I really, really enjoyed doing that one. And uh, it happened so quick. It was written in about 20 minutes, you know. It was one of those sort of songs. Jesus. And it was just the fact that we, um, at the time, Andrew Pinello, his name was from Sydney, and he took us on the big day out so we got to do all five big day outs and we opened at the boiler room with sisters underground and omc and uh when we opened up people would come and say gosh what's that song about the ringmaster and the circuses and and i'd say oh yeah that's one we're working on and it was a guy clinton walker believe it or not that came up to me and he said i want to do an interview with you guys and I said to Andrew, who's he? And Andrew said, um, oh, gosh, um, yes, do an interview with him. He's Australia's Rolling Stone representative. And uh, he wrote up OMC, and we got the middle pages of the Rolling Stone. Wow. And when we left New Zealand... So this is before it's even really done. Yes, yes, this is quite funny, actually. This is a funny story, and that's why um, I tell people out there now, believe in yourself and just go for it. Because when OMC got up on stage, all the other rappers, they got up and walked out. They actually showed their disapproval at the boiler room at Auckland Big Day Out by getting up and walking off. And even people looking back at me going, and I was like, what the hell have we done here? You know. <laughs> so we got to Australia and um, when we played in Sydney, there was only... 12 people because it was uh, they played at 10.30 in the morning right yes oh, nice <laughs> which was nice because it was still cool and the mm. sun hadn't eaten up so and uh, there was just this one guy there Clinton Walker and he was from the Rolling Stone magazine and he was just so impressed with Paulie he couldn't believe it he said this and he saw what I saw in Paulie you know, wow. which was absolutely fantastic and um, it's a funny one, the big day out, because they once the trucks leave from um, Adelaide, they have to drive all the way to Perth. So you go from Adelaide back to Sydney again, and you hang right. out for a few days. And the trucks are only allowed to drive 10 hours at a time. So um, you have about three days off while the truck's driving through to Perth to Amazing. set up. And uh, we went back to Sydney, and that's when he did the interview. And then we went off and did Perth. And then we got back to New Zealand, and there was people at the airport to meet us and photos being taken and all this and I said what the hell's going on and I rang up Simon Greek and he said to me oh have you not heard I said what he said you guys are in the middle of the Rolling Stone he said you got the centre pages of the Rolling Stone he said right. OMC is the biggest band in Australasia as far as this guy's concerned and Paulie is the Marvin Gaye of the Pacific he said no wonder they all want to know you he said look I'm happy to put some money up if you want to record some songs with Paulie I said well we've got the songs I'll, I'll go in and record them and Holy the rest is history wow I didn't know it was that is our wow I yeah. hope I got that as my scoop <laughs> no, that sequence of events is strange because I always imagine because of the first album being done that it was just working naturally through that that song. No, no, that, I went to EMI, God bless them, and they sort of said to me, um, oh, well, you have to go and talk to your guy in Australia to get more stuff released because uh, mm. it was like, yeah, oh, all right, you did this, this was great, but no one really wanted to know. No, no. 
um, you know, EMI did have a bit of a foot in the door there. They were a great help to us. Yeah. But um, that was only because Volition was distributed in New Zealand through EMI. Right. And it was Andrew Pinello who was the guy that saw it all. He saw the vision. Um, God, we didn't make a lot of money out of it, but he certainly helped us get on our way. Yeah, wow. That is a really cool way to... I'm going to try and... I'll edit that, tweak that into the original story of when we're in the real timing. Okay. We're going to end on your missus telling everyone you're bossy. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, that was a great interview. You can certainly uh, got the stories right there. Uh, oh. Are you happy? Um, oh, yeah, I'm very so happy. What, I just we, wished I could have said a bit more about Graham. He was a great poet, eh? He used to blow me away things that he'd say. He'd say, um, life is short, so we need to find somewhere a bit taller. <laughs> Crack me up. Hey, no, fantastic interview. So nice to meet yeah, you properly. Thank you, and lovely uh, to meet you. It's kind of funny to make fast friends while I learn about you. Proper yeah, and, and don't don't listen to your peers, whatever you do. Just get on with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, your peers are always going to tell you this is wrong and that's wrong. Just get on with what you believe. And, you know, you'll if you keep doing it, sooner or later you'll hit that right sort of nerve with the people and away you go you know hey, i'm gonna <laughs> turn these machines off okay thank okay, you ma- i can make you another cup of coffee that sounds good to me awesome see you soon bye thanks it's a cruel june morning on the edge of the city it's so damn hot and my neck is feeling gritty i gotta find something to do Cause if I don't pretty soon, I think I'll go Lulu Every day seems like the same old thing Listen to the brothers talking about the damn Mac-10 I gotta roll, cause I got a feeling I gotta keep the sound of the underground reeling And I'm out like bell-bottom trousers Fruity, funky, chunky, dropping beats by the hour And you know, the sisters on the boulevard Don't give me props, they're just too damn hard Stroll right past them, roll right past them Even though they talk crap and make me wanna blast them Because I'm chill, I have to keep subliminal Cause I know my enemies are white-collar criminals